Welcome to a new edition of the Neon Jazz Interview Series with jazz pianist, composer, and educator Angelica Sanchez. We caught up with her about her new 2023 CD, Nighttime Creatures, with Hernan Neb. It was the culmination of six years of writing, rewriting, rehearsals, concerts, van trips with the band, and the love and support of friends and family. So she moved to New York from Arizona in 94, and since moving to the East Coast, she has collaborated with the best in the business and is now passing that on as a jazz educator to the next generation. Enjoy this interview. Excellent. Angelica, thank you for taking a minute after the show. I appreciate it. Oh, thanks for having me. Absolutely. So before we get into your latest work, I want to kind of cover what we've lived through for the last three and a half years getting through the pandemic. How did you get through it, and how did it change you? I was very fortunate um, to be, during the pandemic, I was teaching at two different schools, uh, and both of those schools um, had online classes, so I was able to maintain um, some income during that time. All of the concerts and tours I had scheduled for that time were canceled like everyone else's. So I had um, some teaching work to fall upon. It was still difficult because uh, I wasn't full-time at those places, right? So you, they were supplementing my uh, the music, uh, money I was making for music. So, um, so I was fortunate to be home um, and teaching a little bit. And I still played, I still was playing gigs throughout the pandemic, probably in hindsight not the best thing to do, um, but I can remember playing at Smalls before there was a vaccination, you know, and uh, and just and realizing, oh, this is probably not a good idea. But we have to work, right? We have to, to make music. So uh, hold on one second. I'm sorry. My neighbor's using sure, sure. something outside. Let me move to a different part of the house. Sorry, do you need me to start that over? No, you're good. No, I can edit uh, that. Oh, okay, cool. Um so, you know, I was at home, and I had an opportunity to practice a lot and write music, and I played several concerts for no audience during that time. I was still doing a little bit of traveling, which was um, a little bit scary, um, but that's what we do, right? So I was still maintaining um, concerts through that time. Not as many as I had hoped, but um, but it was nice to have the teaching online. I don't think students enjoyed online teaching very much, but I, I most certainly did. Yeah, for sure. So, how does it feel? How did it feel to be able to release a new album with with your Nanette, Nighttime Creatures? What was that kind of? How did it feel to release that album? And what were the artistic forces that went into this? Sure. Um, well, I had tried to record that record uh, several times. Um, I made a live recording of that group before the pandemic, and I, I wasn't satisfied with it. So I. I I didn't use it, and so then the pandemic hit, and then towards the end of the pandemic, um, we tried to record again, but it just wasn't possible. Like, too many people had COVID, and um, and I we had worked for previous to that before the pandemic for four or five years touring, doing gigs whenever I could. So when we finally got to the studio um, at the very end of the pandemic, at least what I consider to be the end, it was uh, really amazing to have two days in the studio and do it the way I wanted. So it was a long time coming for me. It was a, it, it took a long time to put this recording out pan, due to the pandemic and uh, uh, financial reasons, or I had to get funding for it, which I did. Um, so a lot of things went into it. The musical part of, of making that record um, was a joy, and I think because I had so much time to hear the music in performance, 
I was really able to sculpt it and shape it how I wanted. Like I made minor changes along the way, not big changes, but minor changes. So by the time we got to the studio, you know, the band really understood the music. They were inside of the music. I had to say very little to the the band in uh, in the studio. Right? We just we um, we went in and, and recorded it, and it was it was great. So it was I was very happy when it finally came out. You know, it felt like it took a minute to for it to come out. So what are you ultimately hoping the listener gets from this album? Well, I think that's up to the listener. The only thing I will sort of guide them to is to, you know, just sit for, you know, uh, I think it's almost 80 minutes long. Sit for as long as you can without judging it. Just let the music roll over you, right? And see where it takes you. Everyone's experience is going to be different. I can't tell you if the music is good or bad. I can only tell you that it's honest music, and it came from a place um, of real love with the band and the music. And um, not all the music. Two of the two of the tunes aren't mine, and those tunes are tunes that I, I really love, and I, I that's why I felt so strongly to include them. Um, but just to sit and see where it takes you, and to not judge it. It's very hard as humans for us to not judge things, right? We're all, we're all very good at doing that. And I always tell students and friends, I'm like, you know, what, just sit in a chair and see what it feels what it feels like at the end of your experience, right? So that's all I hope for. Right on. So, talk to me a little bit about where you were born and raised, and how these seeds of jazz grew into who you are today. Sure. Uh, I was born in Phoenix, Arizona. Um, I grew up in a Mexican American family. And uh, it was pretty isolating, musically speaking, as a kid. But the one thing that really changed things for me was um, my father had a wonderful record collection. He would get records from a friend of his who worked at a liquor company, because back then jazz labels used to send records to liquor companies to hand out his promos. So he had a pretty nice record selection. And in the collection was modern, the Modern Jazz Quartet, Dave Brubeck, George Shearing, um, he had all the Get to Go Go records, Dan Guess. He had all the Brazilian Jobim records. He also had like Willie Bobo and uh, Mongo Santa Maria. He had all of these records, Tito Puente, Tilevia Cougar. And at the time, when I was a kid, I just thought, oh, that's dad's old timey music, you know. And one time around the age of 10, a local trio, I think it was local, I don't remember, a local jazz trio came to my grade school and played live in the cafeteria. And in hindsight, I was like, man, it must have been the worst gig for these guys showing up in this cafeteria with a bunch of screaming 10-year-olds. All the kids were going bananas, and I just got became very fixated on what they were doing. And it was like a, it felt like almost a movie, like I became hyper-focused, and I really focused in on what they were I was mesmerized. And I remember going home and asking my dad, do you have jazz records in your collection? And he goes, yeah. And I said, can I listen to them? He goes, sure, have at it. So I just devoured his record collection, and then one day he gave me this record. He goes, this record's too wild for me. Maybe you like it. And it was Miles Smiles. And I remember putting it on and not not even realizing you could make sounds like that. I couldn't understand what Herbie Hancock was doing. So I spent you know, all my teen years trying to figure that out and buying every Herbie Hancock record. And that sort of, I started backwards. I started being mesmerized by, you know, George Shearing and Herbie Hancock, and then Herbie Hancock led me to Monk and led me to everyone else, right? So um, um, that's how it started, and, it, and it's, it's still going. <laughs> yeah, for sure. So talk to me about the move to New York. What was that like for you to, you know, 
migrate to the land, the mecca of jazz, and to get there and to learn and play and grow? What was that transition like? I moved, I guess I was about 20 years old when I moved to New York. And uh, at the time I wasn't married, I had a boyfriend who's also a musician. Um, and we drove across the country in like a U-Haul van, which we really didn't need to do. We we drove to, into the village. We had an apartment reserved in the village that was a friend of ours' apartment. It's actually Richie Perry's old place, if you know Richie Perry, the saxophone player. Um, and we brought all this, all our things in the U-Haul van, and none of them fit in the in the apartment. So most of them ended up on the street corner. But I remember just it was surreal for me. You know, I I worked at Tower Records. We had this apartment on the East Village on Sixth Street. And it was sort of a magical time, and I was so broke. We were so broke back then, but it didn't matter. We we still got to hear music, and we played a lot. And I started developing, you know, uh, relationships with musicians that I wanted to play with, and, and everyone was uh, very open and kind, and, and that's what began. You know, I, I think I moved here in 1995. And uh, at the time, I, I didn't teach. I didn't even have a, a degree or anything. I was just playing gigs. So um, that's how how it started. And then, you know, you develop relationships with people. And I still have relationships with all those musicians that I met at the beginning. So obviously when you go to a place like New York as a jazz musician, there's you're bespeckled by all of these stages and venues. What was the one stage or one place or venue that you played at that you dreamed of and almost had to pinch yourself? You couldn't believe it was happening. Um, it wasn't so much the venues for me where I'm pinching myself but it was with people that I was like oh wow, I can't believe I get to play you know with Tom Rainey I was I was very young at the time or play with um, Michael Foreman acting you know or or talk to someone like Fred Hirsch or you know meet Kenny Warner the, the 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 summer before I arrived in New York I went to a music camp in Sandpoint Idaho that Eddie Schuler was running and the faculty was Joe Lovano Kenny Warner Billy Hart Right, so I got to meet these giants of jazz uh, then, and they I still maintain a friendship with all of them now, you know. So um, I, w- I was very welcome when I got to New York, you know, and I played a lot at the Stone um, back when it was in the Lower East Side. There were a bunch of clubs in the Lower East Side that I played with, and the Knitting Factory was still a, a place that was open to people that were unknown. No one knew who I was, but they would give you they would give you a little budget, and you play in the side room and the small room. So there were places to play. It's different now. There's less places to play unless you're a superstar, right? Um, so, but, but it was mostly with people. When I get to play with people like Billy Hart or Dada Leo Smith. I, you know, I did, I, those are pinching moments where it's like, wow, I can't believe I get to play with this master of music, right? So, um, but places, not so much. Places come and go, you know? Yeah, absolutely. So you've been, you're pretty diversified as a composer and a performer, pianist, and educator. But what do you look forward to the most? What has been the, the, the greatest joy of being a professional musician for you? I mean, making music is is a gift to be able to do it. You know, um, the greatest joy for me is just connecting with uh, individuals and, and, you know, living on that higher plane of existence where music takes us. Every time I get to do it, it's it's thrilling. I just can't wait to, to do it again. You know, I always joke with people after we play a gig, what are we supposed to do now until the next gig? Because life seems so boring <laughs> when you're not playing. So... 
uh, I, it's that connection with people. We don't make we don't make art in a vacuum. So it, it's the the connection, right, that you have with people. First, you learn it to have it, to connect to yourself and your instrument, and then you expand that to to do it with other people. When you have these musical marriages with people, that's always thrilling, very exciting, right? You don't know what's going to happen, and you can't wait for it to happen. You know, so that's what I look forward to. You know, the one thing, too, as you had mentioned, all of these players and legends and luminaries like Madonna Leah Smith, Paul Motian, Richard Davis, and, and there's there's all these people that you've played with. And what, what do you get from the legends and luminaries that you like to pass on to your students, to those that you teach? Oh, I've learned so many different things from all those folks that you mentioned I think the biggest thing that, it sounds so simple when I say it out loud, but the biggest thing I've learned from people like Paul Motion or Wadada or, or Richard Davis um, is that those folks were never in a rush to get anywhere musically. They were in the moment and, and didn't have an urgency to get anywhere or do anything. And you let the music do what it's going to do. You know, there was no, there's nothing you can control. It's not your music to begin with. It exists outside of you. You hope to just push uh, your thoughts aside to let it pass through you, right? So, but this sense of uh, space and breath is—I always am amazed when I—I I still I'm still learning about it, you know. But those are the things I took away from playing with those masters. It's like there was never an urgency, or no, they had nothing to prove to anybody. And that's what I tell students today: I'm like you have nothing to prove to anyone except yourself. So, you know, when you're trying to teach a student to be in the moment and also learn their instrument and develop their ear. When you tell them you're right where you need to be, just breathe into that space. You know, you don't, you don't have to prove anything. So that was what I, I learned from playing with elders. You know, that's one of the things. There's so many things, but, the, but that's, a big, that's a big takeaway, you know. So why do you love this thing that we call jazz? Well, this thing that we call jazz is such a vast, Thing, I feel like the word jazzy isn't even a good word for it. I don't believe it can be described, right? Um, but I love the music. I love it. I learned it as a black American art form because that's where it came from. But we don't know where it's going. It continues to expand just like any language. It, language evolves. And there's an evolution to it. And, and the music is welcoming to everyone. Right, but to deny the origins of it is criminal. So I always tell people, no, this is definitely a Black American art form. You have to recognize where it comes from and make um, pay homage to those contributions. Um, but I love that it, it, it in music in general uh, transcends all these worldly things, right? That that trouble us and, and the, the human condition and all that. So um, it, it, has, it has a healing effect to it. It sounds. Uh, maybe a little try to say it so simply, but it really does. Like when you play music, you you're different after you play, right? Your your molecular your molecules change. And we know that for a fact. Science doesn't know that. So I, I um, that's why I love it and and the connection to other people. Thanks for listening and tuning in to another Neon Jazz interview where we give you a bit of insight into the finest players and minds in New York City, Arizona, Kansas City, and spots all over the globe giving fans all that jazz. Thanks to Angelica for coming on the show for all the stories and time. If you want to hear more Neon Jazz interviews, you can find us on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Subscribe to us at YouTube and for everything Neon Jazz, go to the neonjazz.blogspot.com. Until next time, enjoy the jazz, my friends.
Neon Jazz.